0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm really delighted to welcome you all here this evening to our first behind the headlines discussion of the autumn and the first of the new academic uh, year. Everybody had a very productive summer. It's a myth that academics don't work in the summer. I know it couldn't have been busier for me. And, and, and Joan, I know you know that too. So uh, uh, we're really thrilled uh, this evening to have such a distinguished uh, panel of speakers bringing together very diverse uh, viewpoints from across the humanities and uh, beyond academia. My name is Jane Olmayer and I have the privilege of being the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub which is our Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Tonight's event is part of our Behind the Headlines uh, public discussion uh, series. It's supported by the John Pollard Foundation, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Stephen Vernon uh, here this evening. Uh, Through this uh, forum, we discuss topics uh, either that are being debated in the media Uh, or that are highly uh, prevalent uh, in the times in which we're living. What we really want to do is to take insights, uh, uh, and here I say insights, and I really mean the long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities, and to provide a space for respectful public uh, discourse, embracing nuance and um, combating simplification. Something that we think is more pressing now than ever in an era when debate has become so partisan and so uh, divided. So, a decade on from the start of what will be remembered as a dark period in our state's uh, history, we revisit Ireland's banking crisis and consider its impact and its legacy and what lessons, if any, Uh, have been learned. Um, Tonight we're honoured to have a great panel of speakers from the world of journalism, I hope, Simon Carswell I'm hoping is still joining us, Um, politics, regulation and our own uh, humanities uh, perspectives. I'm also very conscious that colleagues are joining us online and those of you, we we live stream everything and just for everybody to be aware uh, that we are live streaming uh, this event. Uh, My discipline is that of history, so I'm always delighted when we have a historian on the panel because I think it's all uh, too easy to forget uh, what came before. And while austerity and debt created an unbearable situation for far too many people in the aftermath of the banking crisis uh, and obviously the the immigration that devastated many small communities around Ireland – if we go back to the famine in the mid-19th century, we can put our recent crisis in some sort of context. And that's exactly what our first speaker tonight, uh, 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 Antonia Hart, will be doing. I don't know, if, has, have people seen the film Black 47? No, you I, I have? Yeah, I, I'm looking, for, well, I don't know if I'm looking forward to it. I am looking forward to seeing it. I believe it's, it's, it's extremely well done, but I haven't actually seen it. But I think the famine is a particularly important moment, actually, to be reflecting anyway, uh, on that. So Antonia is in our Department of History. Uh, she'll take us back to the mid 19th century, looking at the role that debt and credit played in the lives of very ordinary people uh, in the aftermath of uh, the Great Famine. Uh, she actually is doing a PhD, though, on something a little bit different. She looks at Irish women running businesses um, in the late 19th century up until the foundation of the state. And Antonia is a Government of Ireland Irish Research Council uh, scholar. She's also an early career researcher based in the Trinity at Longroom Hub. I hope Simon Carswell is also going to be joining us. Do we know if Simon's coming? He's running a little late,
2: so he'll be here
1: by 7. Ooh. Well, maybe he won't be our second speaker, but if he's here on time, he'll be our second speaker. If not, he'll be our third. But uh, uh, Simon Carswell is also joining us this evening. He's the public affairs editor of the Irish Times and was finance correspondent from 2007 to 2012, obviously covering the financial crash Uh, He was named uh, National Journalist of the Year in 2011 uh, for his coverage of the crisis, and he's the author of two books on the banking uh, scandals and uh, uh, Anglo-Irish Bank. Apart from being an authority on the banking crisis, he's also a history graduate from Trinity. So again, it's lovely to have another historian. And his talk uh, will focus on the lessons learned or not learned uh, uh, from uh, the crisis. Our third uh, panellist this evening is uh, uh, Joan uh, Burton, TD, who probably needs no introduction from me, but I will say a few words anyway, because she's the Labour Party TD for Dublin West, uh, and she was the Labour Party spokesman. Uh, on finance from 2002 to 2011, um, and uh, in uh, uh, September 2008 she was a major critic of the bank guarantee and the subsequent uh, legislation. Deputy Burton served as the Taunashta and leader of the Labour Party from 2014 to 2016 and has held a number of ministerial uh, roles, most recently as Minister for Social uh, Protection. And tonight, she's going to be looking at the political backdrop to the bank guarantee and the uh, speculative uh, property uh, bubble and the tax incentives which preceded the crash. Fourth, um, our fourth panellist tonight is Ed Sibley, who is Deputy Governor of Prudential Regulation at the Central Bank. As Deputy Governor, um, uh, Ed is responsible for leading the supervision Of banks and credit unions, insurance firms, and asset management, the asset management uh, industry. And his talk will provide a regulatory perspective, 10 years on, looking at how regulatory reforms since the crisis have increased the resilience of the financial system, but also looking at the legacy issues which continue to challenge the regulatory environment. Last but not least um, is uh, Philip Coleman who is from Trinity's School of English. Uh, Philip, and you may have heard him on Arena last night, but he's a specialist in uh, American literature with a particular interest in 20th century and contemporary poetry uh, and short fiction. And tonight he'll be asking how um, uh, Irish and other poets responded to uh, the banking crisis over the last uh, decade. So Philip's looking at the human perspective behind the crisis um, and he'll ultimately address the bigger question of the relationship between poetry or art and money and the broader questions of value and and culture so we've got five panelists which is actually a little bit unusual those of you who are regulars here know that normally we have four which it means everybody's going to be very i'm going to be very strict i'm a strict timekeeper at the best of times but tonight it really is each speaker has nine minutes and only nine minutes, and I know many of them could speak for an hour each easily, um, but we do want to leave time for Q&A and for uh, discussion, Um, uh, and you will have your opportunity at the end um, uh, to ask our speakers uh, or our panel uh, questions. Just as I'm asking them to be brief, I'm going to ask you to be brief and ask very clear and direct and (coughs) succinct uh, uh, questions. So just to remind you again, everything is being podcast tonight and uh, live-streamed. If you'd like to join the conversation online, please use the Twitter uh, hashtag HubMatters, There it is there. Um, uh, So for now, please join me in welcoming our first uh, speaker, uh, Antonia Hart. Antonia.
3: (laughs) Thank you, Jane. So, ten years on. It's extraordinary, really, to reflect on that interval and all that's happened since 2008 and before it. Credit cards, mortgages, car loans, they seem so much like products of the way we live our 21st century lives. But credit and debt have always been with us, and it's perhaps worth considering this before embarking on tonight's analysis of more recent events. I'm going to look right back to the middle of the 19th century, to what was, of course, the most significant crisis in our national history, the famine. And starting from there, I'd like to look at the place that debt and credit have occupied for so long in the lives of ordinary Irish people. There can be no one in this room who is not familiar with the famine. Six years of hunger deprivation and disease that killed a million people and saw another million emigrate. In 1849, the poor law commissioners began an information-gathering exercise to assess the effects of the famine. As part of this exercise, they sought specific local intelligence from the pawnbrokers in each poor law union. It seems tone-deaf at the very least for the authorities to gauge the distress of a diseased and starving people through their contact with money-lending institutions. But pawnbrokers around the country made their reports, writing about what they had witnessed over the previous five years. Their business had always been seasonal, and in rural areas had tracked the farming year. But by the autumn of 1847, Honoria Shannon, pawnbroker in Gert, could hardly lend at all she said people became so poor and their pledges so valueless that in fact no money could be lent them on the pledges they took to the office the same story was told elsewhere those who did still have items against which they could borrow small sums were increasingly unlikely to redeem them in nina The pawnbroker had for three years largely refused items, knowing that they would be left on his hands, unredeemed and unsaleable. In Kilrush, by 1848, redemptions had dropped to one in 20 items, and the locals described as all but naked. Discussion about whether rapacity on the part of pawnbrokers exacerbated people's experience of the famine is ongoing. At the time and afterwards, outside the specific context of the famine, there was prolonged public debate about the industry, focusing mainly on the hardship imposed by high interest rates and the refusal of many pawnbrokers to submit to the regulatory requirements which were a condition of their license. Inquiries into the industry were conducted, reports were written, legislation was promised, but actual legislative reform did not materialise until 1966. Sounds familiar? <laughs> During the second half of the 19th century, credit accounts in shops were absolutely everyday for ordinary people. At a time when shopping and the provision of services were done locally, and your credit worthiness could be assessed by the shopkeeper's eye rather than by scrutiny of your financial records. The records of this kind of debt can quite often be found in surviving day books and ledgers. To take an example, Hannan's was a family business in Limerick, incorporating a public house and off-license, a grocer's and an undertaker's. The surviving ledger covers 15 years of business from 1891 and gives a good picture of typical customer accounts. At the grocers and the off-license, most of the customers lived locally and were in and out of the shop almost every day, buying on credit necessities like milk, tea, bread, butter, sugar, jam, candles and oil, as well as drink, usually in the form of bottles of stout and whiskey. Customers settled their debts every six weeks or so. The Hammonds ran their funeral business on quite a different basis, Almost every single funeral, from cheap to lavish, had to be paid for in full at the time. The exceptions were workhouse funerals. The business from the workhouse was so brisk that it warranted its own section in the ledger. And credit was given on those coffins, with the workhouse account being settled every three months by check. So credit was usual for getting your daily goods... But you couldn't get everything on credit, and if you weren't in a position to settle up at the agreed intervals, credit might be denied you in future. There was always a need for cash, and the easiest way to produce cash at short notice was the pawnbroker's shop, a place where, unlike a bank, it didn't matter that you were a woman, or poor, or otherwise marginalised. There was no credit check, almost no paperwork, and you could walk out in a matter of minutes with cash in your pocket. But of course the interest payments became a regular burden, and what was intended as a rapid response to a condition of precarity ended up being a contributor to the condition of precarity. You could still, until 1872, be imprisoned for debt. There was an ongoing campaign to abolish this, and that campaign intensified in 1860, after 20-year-old Mary Cockey, who was imprisoned in Belfast, over a debt of £26, which she had incurred in buying furniture, died by suicide in jail. John Ray, who appeared at the inquest on behalf of her next of kin, said, "'I address a jury of my own townsmen, "'most of them small shopkeepers engaged in business, "'when they are obliged to give credit to the working classes. "'Any man here may be brought to this jail.' The more extensive a man's business may be, the more readily may he find himself suddenly brought to poverty. Imprisonment for debt was eventually abolished, but the problem of this obligation to extend credit persisted, often fatally burdening small businesses who were trying to manage their own line of credit with suppliers. If you weren't able to balance your books, you could find yourself served with a petition of bankruptcy. The Belfast bankruptcy records, dating from 1888 on, detail the lost struggles of thousands of small businesses, and this is a pattern that comes up again and again. There are numerous examples in the bad debt columns, particularly of hoteliers and shopkeepers, who have given credit without even taking the customer's address, and of course that was money they would never see again. If you're unable to pay your suppliers, but unable to garner what is owed to you, you probably end up looking for some form of bridging loan. And the bankruptcy files indicate that women, at least, frequently borrowed cash within the family, most often from a parent or sibling, but also from business connections, like a supplier or landlord. But of course, their very presence in the bankruptcy files indicates that at some point the seams began to give. So, while a functioning system of credit was essential to daily life for so many people, however hard you worked, it could lead to a rapid unravelling of your business over fairly small sums of money. Credit didn't cover everything. You might get a cash loan, you might make a trip to the pawnbrokers to alleviate an immediate need, but you'd be left with problematic interest payments. Domestic debts were usually for basic foodstuffs and domestic supplies. And for businesses, it was so frequently the failure to pay for these basic supplies and services that tested the elastic limit between credit on the one hand and debt on the other. The reality of this normalized credit economy, this long-standing way of living and doing business, was that it placed an almost constant cyclical burden of debt and repayment on ordinary people, a burden which they had to discharge repeatedly, not to oversupply themselves with material comforts, but simply in order to keep the show on the road when it came to food and rent and clothing. A painfully recognisable picture. Thank
0: you.
2: Um, good evening, everybody, and uh, thank you for the invitation to be here. In many ways, in terms of the era we're talking about, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. If you look at the period from roughly 2002 up to 2007, when really we came to the height of the boom, for a lot of people, it was and it felt like the best of times. But when you come to the crash, 2008, uh, out particularly to about 2012, uh, when the first signs of recovery really began. It was probably, for many people in Ireland, uh, one of the most difficult periods, hopefully, they would ever experience in their lives. 330,000 people lost their jobs. Thousands of firms uh, closed, particularly SMEs, as creditors lost the ability to repay. And the construction industry, which had been the driver of the Irish economy, to the uh, extent that it took up an enormous uh, amount of the economy, just literally went through the floor, and with it, the livelihoods of vast numbers of people in the construction industry. So when we look at the early 2000s, I suppose the standout event is that Ireland, around 2002, joined uh, the euro. It had made the the agreement to join it around 1999, but it actually came into effect from then. And of course immediately it unleashed really a a lake of credit that was available uh, to banks uh, in a way that simply had not been available before. Uh, The same was true in relation to the developers and uh, the construction firms. Who relied on banks and financial institutions. In fact, allied to that, which was really what made the situation ultimately completely unsustainable, was that our tax laws, uh, through a whole series of reliefs and exemptions uh, and special tax structures, positively threw money at people who invested in property, land, and construction. And, you know, developers' helicopters, for people who are younger, they literally buzzed over race meetings uh, because it was a sign of the times. Um, the Charlie McCreevy famously said at that time, when I have money, I spend it. But in fact, we were living in a bubble, but it wasn't a bubble, if you like, that people particularly recognized. Because they take, you know, ordinary people who aspired to buy a house and went <coughs> about doing that. House prices went up dramatically, uh, but the the bank credit uh, was available uh, to support that. uh, And your local bank was very friendly indeed, your local financial institution, regularly popping unasked for messages in the door to say your credit was good for quite startling amounts, really. Um, So in 2003... I became the uh, Labour Party's spokesperson on finance because I told Pat Rabbit I wanted the job. I was probably, in my view, at the time, the only person qualified to do it and became, if you like, the only woman spokesperson on finance uh, in a major party and uh, during a lot of that era. And I do want to point out that while there were Lehman brothers, at the time there were very few, if any, Lehman sisters. And I think it's important to recognise, uh, and perhaps Ed can comment on this, that uh, financial markets, there's a lot of t- testosterone there. And people who are taught uh, to uh, trade, you know, the key thing is to really have that kind of gambling instinct and basically hope that everything uh, will turn out all right. Um, Gordon Gecko famously said, greed is good. And that became the motto of the global uh, finance capitalism, which really reached a new level at that point in time. Anne Enright uh, wrote an interesting novel around them called The Forgotten Walls. And uh, I don't know, some of you here may have read it. But the couple in the novel buy a shoebox house somewhere on the outskirts of Dublin. And literally at one point, uh, the guy in the relationship can feel he can hear the money value of his house growing as he lies in bed. And that says it all. This was an incredible sense of well-being. Ask yourself at the moment, are Irish people delighted that property prices are rising again? Somewhere a great well of well-being almost comes to people with that feeling. They may not want to realise it, uh, but remember, the banks had lots of sayings then you know, release the equity in your prop- in your property uh, so that you could borrow. A couple coming in who already had an apartment were getting married, maybe lecturers in Trinity, the bank said, keep the apartment, buy another house. And uh, I used to, as, as somebody who worked in the DIT, be regularly asked by people, should I do this? Uh, but the banks always said, go for it. Uh, so individuals, in a certain sense, became, uh, some of them, Uh, if you like, speculators, uh, in an unthought-out way, urged on by the banks. September uh, 2007, and I just want to reference 2007, the Wall Street Journal described Ireland as being the Wild West uh, of capitalism, and that was a seminal moment and actually I think very few people in the banking structure paid much attention. And an interesting thing happened then in September 2007. A local principal teacher, one of the primary schools in my own area, rang me up and said, Joan, I have the school savings uh, in Northern Rock. Do you think I need to go down and get the money out? And some of you may have remembered debates on Joe Duffy at the time, uh, where people were literally queuing in large numbers in the UK to take their money out of the bank in small but significant numbers unheard of in Ireland to do that in Ireland. So, you know, breaking, uh, uh, as it were, uh, the whole consensus of silence. The fundamentals are sound. I can remember meeting bankers at the oil committees whose hands were literally dripping with sweat, but the fundamentals were sound. And you try to put the two together. Come the uh, night of the bank uh, guarantee, my difficulty with the Department of Finance was when I went in, and uh, you know I have a background uh, in business in the sense of originally working as a chartered accountant, I kept being told that I didn't really understand essentially the financial genius of people like Sean Fitzpatrick. Uh, And of uh, people like Sean Quinn. I didn't understand their model. Now, I have to confess, the more the Department of Finance intimated things like that, the more I feel I'm really not going with a blanket bank guarantee that these guys are proposing. And so the Labour Party decided to oppose the bank guarantee. And interestingly, uh, a number th- There was very little left participation, to be honest, in discussion. That all came a lot later. So just uh, moving to now, are there things we should be aware of? I saw a little article in the papers at the weekend that uh, the central bank may be looking for consultants to uh, give a view on whether or not bankers, senior bankers' salaries should be allowed to go above the half million mark, uh, plus a 25% package allowance. alongside that. Ed could confirm if that's likely to be true. I think we actually need now to focus on you know, the fallout. Without a doubt, the most difficult part of the fallout is what has happened to housing in this country. From being a, ha- a country where most of the audience here at some stage could aspire the younger part of the audience to buy a house by their late 20s or early 30s. That's now shifted, almost out of reach. And if you're uh, one of the many tens of thousands of people on social housing lists, and you're talking to somebody like me, unless there are medical circumstances or other exceptional circumstances, or actual homelessness, the chance of getting a place of your own through social housing is almost zero for at least the next five to eight years. And yet, all of these people uh, are people who work hard uh, and who constitute probably at any one time 30% of our population who need support. It's all our concern for each other, expressed socially through the social and political supports that we have in our place, have in place or should have in place in Irish society, that initially appear to be wrecked, and subsequently have taken a very long time to repair, and that make casualties of so many tens of thousands of Irish people of the of the uh, bank crash and disaster. Thank you.
0: Hi, um, sorry I'm late, I was dealing with a current crisis, writing up on uh, the cervical check uh, crisis which kept kept me late in the newspaper this evening, so sorry about that. Simon Carswell is my name, I'm um, Public Affairs Editor with the Irish Times. I was previously Washington correspondent and before that finance correspondent which qualifies me to speak here tonight. Um, I want to start with a story, a personal story, and this comes from well behind the headlines. It was... Saturday, September 20th, 2008, it was 10 days before the government introduced a 440 billion euro guarantee to plug the hole in one bank at the time, Anglo-Irish Bank, to stop cash draining out of what was the country's third largest bank. Uh, And that Saturday, I went fishing um, in Connemara. I didn't catch anything, but that doesn't matter. It isn't about fish. But the month of September 2008 was a crazy time to be working as finance correspondent at the Times. Wall Street Bank Lehman Brothers had collapsed the previous weekend and after a busy week at work I decided to jump in the car and head to Galway f- to take my mind off things for an overnight trip. But work followed me to Connemara. After a day fishing um, my companion and a friend suggested that we meet an elderly long time friend of his family. He had been a very successful businessman but had long since retired and was at this stage well into his 80s. And he was enjoying quiet weekends away in sleepy Connemara hotels. My friend had mentioned a few days earlier that this elderly friend, let's call him Johnny, wanted to catch up with us. But after we were well into our pints, Johnny asked my friend if he could chat to me privately for a few moments. It was a sudden and sharp shift away in our conversation about fishing. But once we were alone, Johnny leaned in and he asked my advice. He almost whispered that he had a substantial sum of money on deposit at Angle in Galway money he had set aside for his grandchildren, and his manager at Anglo at the time uh, told him that he would give him a more generous deposit rate than he was on then if he put all of his fortune on deposit at the bank. Now I got the impression that the substantial sum on deposit at Anglo was maybe a million euro, and he was on a rate of a little over 5%. The banker was offering him 6% if he moved his entire nest egg to Anglo, and I suspect that that nest egg was millions. What surprised me most was here was a clever businessman who had clearly managed his money exceptionally well years after his retirement, asking a finance reporter from a a newspaper for advice. Now, I made it clear to him that I was not in the business of giving advice, though I noted that the Minister for Finance, Brian Lennon, had at that point, that day, just raised a deposit guarantee to €100,000, so if he spread his money around various institutions, his money would be safe, it would be guaranteed. And It seemed to provide some comfort. Johnny nodded and our friend rejoined us and we carried on talking about fishing. I've reflected on that conversation from 10 years ago many times in the intervening period and what has stayed with me most is that this was a moment when a long-time customer of the bank had completely lost trust in a financial institution. The Anglo manager's uh, offer seemed too good to be true and Johnny's gut told him that it was, but still he wanted assurance and yet you could see that the trust was gone. He was shaken by the offer. It was an act of desperation by the bank and the customers sensed it. Ten years on, we know at that time the panic had gripped the bank internally. The word credit comes from a Latin root word, cred. It means belief or believe. When we deposit our money in a bank, we believe it is in safe hands. At that moment, ten years ago, Johnny stopped believing. Johnny was not alone and ten years on and several years after Johnny's death and after a 64 billion bailout of the banking sector that helped push the government to seek its own bailout many people still not, do not believe in their banks. And I think it will take many years for some to start believing again. In May, when the communications agency, the Reputations Agency, released their rep track study on the most highly regarded organisations in the state, guess where the country's banks featured? Out of 100? Permanent TSB 88th, KBC Bank 89th, AIB 90th, Ulster Bank 92nd place, Bank of Ireland 93rd. There was only one other financial institution that featured below these banks. In 94th place, the Central Bank of Ireland. The institution charged with regulating banks. And if you're wondering that after all we have been through here in the country in the last 10 years, that no institution that handles people's money is going to figure very highly in this survey, well, think again. In first place, the organisation that held the highest regard in terms of the public's trust, admiration and esteem were credit unions. In second place was Kellogg's. So credit unions and cornflakes, <laughs> the things we trust most now. <laughs> the damage to trust is alongside the actual tab the taxpayers picking up for the bailout is the most costly legacy of the banking crisis. The 2008-2010 to 2010 financial crisis was so severe that it resulted in the Irish state taking ownership of the majority of the banking system and putting the financial system in life support in what I believe is the biggest public policy decision by a government in 21st century Ireland, maybe even ge- in generations. The crisis led to the liquidation of the two most reckless institutions, partial and almost full state ownership of the remaining four domestic institutions, criminal convictions against unlawful transactions uncovered in the wake of the crisis, and a change of management in almost all of the other institutions, along with new rules to rein in the excesses of a runaway banking sector. The Republic will recover a good chunk of the 64 billion put into the banks. So, of the 29 billion put into AIB, Bank of Ireland, and permanent TSB, the so called living banks, almost 19 billion has been recovered. And the public stake in, the li- three, in those three banks, based on share prices last month, stands at 11 billion. So we were about a billion shy on those three. But the worst, in the worst cases, almost all of the 35 billion in public money pumped into Anglo and Irish nationwide is gone and won't be coming back. And just to be clear, the 64 billion does not cover the full scale of the carnage in Irish banking from the crisis. If you add the UK owned Ulster Bank, Bank of Scotland, Ireland, and the other foreign lenders, The real cost of the banking crisis soars over 100 billion. That is often forgotten. And to put that in context, the annual budget of our ladies' hospital, children's hospital in Crumlin, is about 140 million. So you could run that hospital for 725 years with the same money lost on Irish banks in the financial crisis. They're depressing statistics. Sure, we can repair our banks, fix the rules of banking, give our regulators more teeth, teeth that they may even use sometime, and create living wills so we can bury bad, dead banks and let bondholders pick up the undertaker's expenses as they should. But how can you rebuild the trust? And, by the way, the damage to trust goes way beyond the balance sheet of banks in the state, but trust in other institutions. It took me four years in the United States reporting on the rise of Donald Trump and another year and a half back home covering Brexit to confirm for me that the post-financial crash anger fed into the populist anti-establishment energy that helped elect a snake oil salesman as President of the United States and encouraged British people to believe that they would be better off outside one of the world's biggest markets right on their doorstep. Trump and the Brexiteers were all about you can't trust the establishment, leading Brexiteer Michael Gove saying people have had enough of experts, Trump saying I alone can fix it to all America's problems. That was fueled by a distrust in institutions and I can't bank some on them. Rebuilding trust, I believe, starts with accountability, and it follows that to achieve accountability you have to hold people to account. A common refrain you would hear in the initial years after the crash was, sure, nobody's going to, go, going to be held to account, nobody will go to jail for bad or excessive lending, and yes, that's correct and proven to be correct. Five bankers, four from Anglo and one from Irish Life Permanent, were convicted and jailed, but none over any issue that caused the collapse of their institutions. Four of them have done or are doing prison time because of unlawful transactions that took place in the months before their collapse. As Judge Karen O'Connor stressed when she sentenced former Anglo-Irish Bank Chief Executive David Drum to six years in prison, she said that she was not sentencing Drum for causing the financial crisis or the recession which occurred after it, but for specific offences that did not cause Anglo's collapse. Hubris and incompetence are not crimes. If they were, our our prisons might have seen many more bankers pass through their doors. No banker went to jail for failing to see the risk spilling in their business by approving four in every five loans to the property market. No banker went to jail for failing to set aside enough money to cover problems within those loan books. No banker went to jail for relying on increasingly complex money markets or even understanding how those markets worked to source the funding for half of their loan books. No banker went to jail for pouring more fuel in the fire by offering 100% mortgages in an already red hot property market. No banker went to jail for allowing future profits in one unfinished housing development in lieu of equity, a cash deposit essentially, to help purchase land for the next housing development. Turning a bank into a house of cards, angle. That is why we need strong regulators to keep banks on a tight rein, to show action, and for them to show action, strength, and skill, and to protect against and get out ahead of those risks. But rules only go so far. The tracker mortgage scandals show that even after a crisis, banks had still not changed their ways. The failure to put customers back on lower-rate tracker mortgages that they were entitled to has resulted in the banks incurring charges of about one billion in the country's biggest ever bank overcharging scandal coming years after the crisis that we went through. Documents that I have seen show that the banks believed that, they were, that with the right formula of words and the right legal advice, they could support actions that, that were not in the interests of their customer, the best interests of their customer. Old habits die hard. As the Anglo cases showed, bankers have a habit of hiding behind legal advice or trying to. As long as you have a brief from a senior counsel in your back pocket or shop around for the right legal advice, you're covered. The tracker scandal showed the us-versus-them attitude bankers have shown towards their customers. The central bank, rather relatedly this year, with the help of the Dutch central bank, looked at the culture within Irish banking, given how the tracker mortgage scandal had shown that their behaviour was not in the right place, as they said, and their attitude was a more do the legal thing than do the right thing. It was depressing reading the regulator found the irish banks were stuck in a firefighting mode still and it slipped back into command and control management structures and siloed decision making which is a recipe for disaster because if you're in charge you're unlikely to know where the problems in your bank lie if your bank is in silos so that's the diagnosis but what's the cure well individual bankers need to be held accountable for their actions decisions need to be traced back to individuals so much so much of the disastrous pre-crisis decision making seemed to rest with collective groups bank boards for bank management teams the central banks. Banks in my view should be viewed more like big utility companies like power plants providing a vital civic service and so expectations should be adjudged accordingly so they are bound to serve the customer and ultimately society. Maybe banks should not be as profitable as they were, maybe mortgages should not be as high on uh, such high rates, maybe banks should be steady, boring and predictable. Maybe they should return to that traditional banking and that banking 363 model, take in deposits at 3%, lend out at 6% and all be done in time to be on the golf course by (laughs) 3pm. It may not make you a millionaire as a banker but at least it would not lump billions of euros of losses on your public. Where bankers are paid handsomely their pay should be tied to long term sustainability. Where there are future losses their pay and bonuses should be clawed back in future. Anglo as an example, Drum was paid $13 million in salary and bonuses between 2004 and 2009, Sean Fitzpatrick earned $9.3 million in his final four years as chief executive. Neither man paid any of that back, although they ultimately filed for bankruptcy, un- unable to pay the burden of their heavy borrowing from Anglo. Other bankers have held on to their Celtic era pay and pensions. How radical a proposition would it be to ask bankers to repay salaries and bonuses commensurate with the losses of institutions they manage, if they are paid salaries and bonuses commensurate with the profits of those institutions. Here is another proposition, the SEC in the US pays whistleblowers who originally uh, who provide original information that lead to uh, convictions on illegal practices between 10 and, 20, 10 and 30% of the money recovered. As of last week the SEC had paid out at least $320 million to 57 tipsters since launching the programme. The biggest award, uh, the 93 million award was paid to one tipster in particular. So I'll leave you with this, my first day as finance correspondent at the Irish Times was reporting on the first run in a, on a British bank in more than 100 years. One of my last columns as finance correspondent was about the suicide of a businessman I knew who had taken a hea- heavily leveraged position on Anglo hoping its shares would rise. It was a dramatic crisis that took a devastating toll on people and families, a crisis that some families are still struggling to recover from and from which some families will never recover. That is something we will hopefully never forget 10 years, 20 years or many years after this debacle. Thank you. Uh, so. Uh,
4: uh... Thank you um, Simon and others, um, uh, uh, good evening everyone, I, I'm d- delighted to, to, to be here uh, today. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important event um, and as Simon has uh, referred to, it is really important that we don't forget the crisis and we don't forget the causes of the crisis um, and we continue to learn the lessons from them, uh, otherwise we will be condemned to, 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 to repeat them. Um, a couple of themes that have come up in terms of diversity, in terms of trust, um, in terms of culture, in terms of accountability, all of which I would agree with. Um, I, I would just correct Joan, just just uh, briefly, it's the Department of Finance who have hired the consultants on bankers' pay, oh, and I that's a matter ask. for the Eurotus, not for, for, for the central bank. Um, so, so,
2: sorry,
4: that was the newspaper. Yes, so uh, that's, no, that's That's <laughs> fine. I'll send a letter to the
2: other
4: and, and just just, uh, just a moment of housekeeping, just to say that my, my full remarks will be published on the Central Bank website, fully, fully referenced as, as is a normal practice. Um, I, I touched on there the importance of, of, of remembering, um, and I will touch on the, the causes. I'll talk a, a little bit about the crisis itself, just touch some of the ground that Simon's covered. I'll talk about what has changed, and I think it's important that we do talk about what's changed, and I'll, I'll spend a, a very brief amount of time uh, looking forward. Um it's 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 very clear, with the benefit of hindsight, that there were multiple causes of the crisis. It was an international financial crisis. Um, there were problems with supervision, problems with financial engineering, problems with behaviour, problems with problems with bank management, uh, problems with um, uh, over indebtedness, problems with rating agencies, um, issues with um, uh, budget budgeting, with macroeconomic policies, tax policies that. Uh, Joan has t- t- talked about, and and this allowed, as uh, the head of the IMF has uh, as recently said, financial institutions, including including banks, to go on a frenzy of reckless risk taking. That's what that, that 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 is what happened leading up to the uh, to the crisis. In in Ireland, there are specific factors that made the crisis deeper and worse. Part part of that is the susceptibility of Ireland to the economic cycle uh, because of the, the, the small open nature of the. Of the economy, but there was also policy decisions uh, around the budget about relying on transient uh, income. There were absolutely regulatory and supervisory failures in Ireland, and there was also a failure to act. So, in other words, there are a myriad of decisions, decisions to take actions, decisions not to act, um, all built on implicit and explicit assumptions that led to the that created the environment that led to the led to the crash, and it was a, a, a classic credit credit fueled. Um, asset bubble in in Ireland. These are as old as kind of 400, at least 400 years old, and it, in Ireland it happened to be happened to be property. And when the the global markets started to retreat, started to get scared, started to retreat to safer assets uh, in two, 2007, and then increasing speed in 2008, and then at kind of light speed after Lehman Brothers in September 2008. <laughs> There was no soft landing for, for the Irish banks, there was no soft landing for the, for the Irish economy. We had plummeting uh, property prices, a spillover to the, to the rest of the economy, which Joan has talked about, which Simon has talked about, and massive distress for, for borrowers, massive distress yeah. for people who lost their jobs, um, and a, 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 um, a severely weakened uh, fiscal position for, for, the, for the Irish state support going into the banks in terms of liquidity support and then capital support, further contraction, contractory budgets forced on, um, forced on the system uh, because of the nature of the crisis and not having resilience to, to, to deal with it. That worsened the issue um, and ultimately led to the, the requirement for the, for, the, for the external support from the IMF and the EU, and then further contractory Uh, and pro-cyclical actions had to be taken, which incidentally would, I think, be much worse if we hadn't had the the external support. Um, And all this had an absolutely terrible human cost. Um, And again, Simon's referred to that, Jones referred to that. And that's still being felt by too many today. We have the ongoing misery of non-performing loans. Um, uh, Not not that there hasn't been a lot of progress in terms of non-performing loans, but we have the ongoing open-source of non-performing loans. And we have the housing crisis today, and again the causes of the housing crisis are multifaceted. Um, but if we, if we look at the, the, the complete emergency hard stop of construction in 2008-9, two, in when from 2011 to 2016 there were less than, the housing stock in Ireland increased by less than 9,000, in the first decade of the, of, of the 2000s it increased by more than half a million. In in 2007, there were 74,000 homes built alone. So a complete hard stop caused difficulties from a fiscal perspective and has caused catastrophic difficulties in terms of the housing crisis today. So what's changed? Um, Well, we've we've been through a decade of of crisis management. We're moving into a period of, I think, what I would hope is crisis prevention or crisis mitigation. Um, We've had an international response uh, in terms of recognising it's been an, an international issue. Um, uh, with, a, with a very significant strengthening of the regulatory framework and the approach to supervision. That's absolutely been applied in, in Ireland, um, both through, th- th- through the law, through the support of the octus and also in terms of the approach the central bank takes to financial regulation. So we now have a much more assertive, risk-based approach to supervision, which is underpinned by the credible threat of enforcement. We've had banking unions. So we ha- now have uh, the, the, the supervision of, uh, of all the... Uh, banks in the Eurozone under the auspices of ECB, which has increased consistency um, and the independence of supervision uh, 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 across across the Eurozone. And we've had numerous and very, very in-depth improvements in our consumer protection approaches. So where does that leave us? From a prudential supervision, which is my uh, perspective, which is my responsibility, what we're looking to try and achieve is a resilient and and trustworthy financial system that serves the needs of the economy and its consumers over the long term. And what what have we achieved? Well, we certainly have achieved a safer and sounder financial system, um, and certainly a safer and sounder banking system um, in terms of when, when we talk about the level of capital uh, versus the risk um, that, they, uh, that they run. What we haven't yet achieved is the cultural shift um, that that's Simon refers to and what, that, that we in the central bank are working uh, very hard on. We've also taken forward looking um, uh, macro prudential measures, uh, the mortgage measures. Um, uh, we've in, it required more capital to be, uh, to be held in banks. And, and you have seen probably over the last week the advice we're giving to government about building resilience into the system, recognizing the susceptibility of Ireland to the, to the economic cycle. So, looking ahead, we definitely have a stronger um, uh, financial system. Uh, uh, I think safer, uh, think more resilient. Um, but it's, it's getting increasingly complex again. It's growing in size again, partly because of, because of Brexit. And we still have significant legacy issues. NPLs I've touched on, culture we talked about, other issues in terms of investment in IT infrastructure, which is very interconnected and an area that needs uh, considerable investment. And if we look at it from a global perspective, the level of global debt in the system is actually higher now than it was in 2009. Ireland still has the fourth highest household debt as a me- against income relative to the, to the rest of the rest of, rest of Europe. That means that Ireland and at a global level, there is still a great deal of vulnerability to, to, to shocks, including interest rate shocks. And there's less room in, for policy measures um, to address uh, potential future shocks. And it is absolutely clear that there are some clouds on the horizon. That there will be future storms. Now we can hope that those storms will be not as severe as the last one, but there storms there will be. And so building resilience now is absolutely critical to us uh, preventing or mitigating um, the challenges that we will face um, into the (coughs) future. The actions of the Central Bank are very much focused on that mission of protecting the public, protecting consumers, Uh, and safeguarding stability. That is our mission. That's our public service mission. And what we're desperately trying to achieve is to deliver that greater resilience into the the system and to mitigate the risks I talk about. I would would sincerely hope that if we are gathered in this room, all of us, in 10 years' time, that we do remember the lessons um, from the crisis. We still remember those lessons. And that the storms that we will face in the intervening period, we will weather a bit better than the last crisis. But that will require continued diligence. It will require long memories. It will require that we build resilience today in the the better times, and address the legacy issues that we still still face. That we do listen this time to alternative voices, to different voices that that have different views. And I'm delighted by the diversity of both background um, and in other measures of the panel today um, and it will require us to think about the assumptions that we're relying on, both implicitly and explicitly, because not all of them will hold. Thank you. Good
5: evening. Poetry rarely makes front page news and one might well wonder what poetry has to do with economics or indeed the financial crisis. It was very much in the headlines in July of this year, however, when the Bank of Ireland Cultural and Heritage Centre in College Green opened with the Seamus Heaney exhibition called Listen Now Again. This was one occasion at least when poetry and banking came together in a very interesting and important way. The title of the exhibition, Listen Now Again, is taken from Seamus Heaney's poem, The Rainstick, in which he writes, you are like a rich man entering heaven through the ear of a raindrop. Listen now again. But what is Heaney asking the reader to listen to again here? On one level, it is the rainstick of the title. Upend the rainstick and what happens next is a music that you never would have known to listen for, he writes. On another level, however, Heaney is describing the way we engage with art itself and how its impact can remain undiminished for having happened once, twice, ten, a thousand times before. Who cares if all the music that that transpires is the fall of grit or dry seeds through a cactus, he asks. What matters is the making of the music itself and our ability to understand and to appreciate it, no matter where or when, no matter how many times we might have heard it before. So Heaney's poem, then, seems to affirm Ezra Pound's notion that poetry is news that stays news. What it has to tell us is important, no matter when we hear it, no matter when the poem was written, as long as we're willing to listen. Not all readers of poetry appreciate its value in this way, of course, and for many, the government's, 615,000 euro contribution to the setting up of the Bank of Ireland Centre, the total cost was 2 million euro, isn't justifiable at a time when homelessness is higher than it has ever been in our capital city. Seamus Heaney's poetry and art in general may have a certain kind of value, aesthetic, say, or even cultural, but how do we reconcile the idea of financial or economic capital on the one hand with aesthetic or cultural value on the other? In short, what is the relationship between poetry or art in general and money? Now this is a question that many writers have pondered. W.B. Yeats for example offers a searing critique of the tendency to focus on the accumulation of material wealth over the pursuit of cultural ideals in his poem September 1913 which begins What need you being come to sense, but fumble in a greasy till and add the halfpence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer, until you have dried the marrow from the bone, for men were born to pray and save. Romantic garlands dead and gone; it's with O'Leary in the grave. Yeats's poem was written in response to Dublin Corporation's decision not to build a gallery to house the Hugh Lane Collection of paintings in 19, 1913. Some critics, however, have said have read it as a text that's also informed by the Dublin lockout of 1913-14, when some 20,000 workers were locked out of their jobs in a dispute over their right to unionise. Yeats's poem doesn't refer to this event directly, but it does seem to to suggest, very problematically, that there is a distinction to be made between the value of art on the one hand and economic wealth on the other. But why should a city or a state, spend money on art when so many of its citizens are hungry or homeless. While it is easy enough, perhaps, to sympathise with Yeats's depiction of the money-grubbing shopkeeper fumbling in a greasy till, it's hard to ignore the fact that this poem makes a claim that the state should invest in art even when many of its citizens are starving. W. H. Auden partly in response to Yeats, famously said that poetry makes nothing happen. I believe, however, that one of its greatest values is to give us images out of which our sense of the world can be created but also deepened. Yeats's poetry often refers to contemporary events and people, and in this he may be said to be reflecting directly on the times he lived in. At the same time, it can be hard to work out precisely what he's saying or where he stands in relation to a particular historical moment. This is something that the contemporary poet Conor O'Callaghan has observed in relation to some recent Irish poetry. Reflecting on the changes that occurred in Ireland between the 1990s and 2013, O'Callaghan says, it's difficult to find direct correlations between social forces and poems. But poetry continues to happen, he says, in silence and solitude. Events like the financial crisis of 2008, he says, are often visible and audible as background. So in Yeats then, as with all poets perhaps, it could be argued that the background is always there but sometimes we have to strain to hear it. Now this isn't always the case and I would say uh, that in the last ten years in particular a number of our uh, poets in Ireland and elsewhere have worked to make the background of economic collapse and austerity a central subject in their work. Several Irish poets come to mind in this regard including William Wall, Kevin Higgins, Dave Lorden, Sarah Clancy, Elaine Feeney, to name just a few writers, who have each in their own way sought to understand and critique the financial crisis in particular and its impact. The late Dennis O'Driscoll, who passed away in 2012, wrote some of the most prescient poems about the boom in the late 1990s, including a poem called Celtic Tiger, in which he wrote, Ireland's boom is in full swing. Rows of numbers set in a cloudless blue computer background prove the point. Outside, new antique pubs, young consultants, well-toned women, gel-slick men, drain long-necked bottles of imported beer. Where are they now, those men and women? It's such a pity that Dennis O'Driscoll isn't here to write about their demise, and more recently their precarious comeback. But in the last decade, and uh, I think other poets, including those I've mentioned, others like Paul Durkin and Paula Meehan, have written in clear and uncompromising ways about the impact of the banking crisis and other recent crises on people's lives. Another important example here, I think, is that of the poet Kerry O'Brien, whose anthology, Looking at the Stars, Irish Writing in Aid of the Dublin Simon Community, which she co-edited with Alice Kinsella. I think this is a significant example of of writers and poets coming together to use their work to raise funds to help those who have fallen on hard times, in part because of the fallout of the financial crisis of 2008. Now, the American poet Wallace Stevens once said that money is a kind of poetry. Um, But in one of her poems, the contemporary American poet Kay Ryan turns this around and says, poetry is a kind of money whose value depends upon reserves it's not the paper it's written on or its self-announced denomination but the bullion sweated from the earth and hidden which preserves its worth nobody knows how this works and how can it why does something stacked in some secret bank or cabinet some miser's trove far back, lambent, and gloated over by its golem make us so solemnly convinced by the transaction when Mandelstam says gold even in translation. This poem is asking about the way that poetry is valued, but it also suggests that it takes time for its value to be determined. Its value depends upon reserves. While some contemporary poets responded very quickly to the economic crisis, Others may yet be in the process of doing so, and there may be others again whose works' meaning in relation to the times we live in now may not be fully appreciated for some time to come. As Heaney puts it in the poem I quoted at the beginning, what happens next is a music that you never would have known to listen for. But it's important, I think, whether we are critics, bankers, economists, (coughs) poets, or politicians, that we continue to pay attention, not just to the headlines, but what lies behind and beneath them. Thank you.